Well, Merry Christmas, and it's a joy to be with you and celebrate these next couple of weeks, the coming into the world of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, before I launch into this brief two-sermon series on Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, let's pray together and ask God's help as we come to his word this morning. Father, we come confessing our great need for you and for your Holy Spirit in this time together to open our eyes and do what no man can do, not even we ourselves can do, as even we read this text this morning, and that is open our eyes to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we pray for a fresh sighting of him this morning in such a way that would grab our affections and grab our allegiance and renew our love and cause us to be conformed to his image. Grant us that grace in our moments together by, your, by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christ, Christmas exists to do a lot of things. But one of the things that Paul teaches us in our text this morning is that Christmas exists to make us humble, unifying, other-oriented Christians. I wonder if you've ever thought about that, that one of the purposes of Christmas is to make us lovers of others. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a congregation that he loves and that's given him much joy, but is manifesting the fairly common, fairly routine, fairly mundane problems in their relationships to one another. Notice what some of those problems are. I want to read the previous four verses to the verses that Jim just read, which set the context for why Paul wrote the text we're considering this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Some of them were prideful. Some of them lacked the humility that they needed in the way they related to one another in the church. Some of them were divisive and didn't have a proper concern for the unity that needs to exist in the congregation. Some of those to whom Paul was writing were self-centered and didn't know how it is that Christians ought to devote themselves to being mutually helpful. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to a congregation with standard, run-of-the-mill, every congregation in the history of the world kind of problems. You see, we're sinners. And you put a bunch of sinners together in a church, and you ask them to live together or live alongside one another, and they're going to hurt one another's feelings. Some are going to be self-centered. Some are not going to be sufficiently concerned about unity. Some are going to be proud, and thus, they are going to lack the proper humility which is necessary to maintain unity in any congregation. These are standing, standing, typical, run-of-the-mill, every congregation problems. And what does the Apostle Paul do? He gives the most intense, the most dense, the most profound exposition of the person and work of Jesus Christ that you will find in any of his writings. And he drops it right on top of us. 
The Apostle Paul wants these Christians and us this morning to get along. He wants them to be humble. He wants them to be united. He wants them to be selfless. He wants them to be helpful. And so what kind of truth would you give somebody like that? Christmas is what you give them. You give them Christmas. You give them Christmas. Paul says, let's see, what shall I say in response to them not being of the same mind, them not being of full accord, them not preferring one another's interests ahead of themselves? What shall I do? Hmm, let me, let me see. I'm going to talk about the preexistence of Christ. I'm going to talk about the incarnation of the Son of God. I'm going to talk about the humiliation of the cross. And I'm going to talk about the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God. That ought to do it. It's sad that it takes that. But it's wonderful that we have that. Christmas exists to make us humble, unifying, other-oriented Christians. Listen, brothers and sisters, if we get all the gifts we want this holiday season, but we fail to be humble, unifying, and other-oriented, we have missed the point of Christmas entirely. So we'll be looking at Philippians 2, 5 through 11 the next couple of weeks. And this week we're going to consider the first half of this section, which deals with what theologians have called the humiliation of Christ. Now, don't think of humiliation as shame or embarrassment. That's the way we typically use it. And that's certainly involved here in what Christ is doing, but it's, it's more rightly described perhaps and more helpful to us to describe it as the humility of Christ, the way in which he went low, the way in which he abandoned his own interests to pursue our interests, the way that he considered us more important than himself. And then next week, Lord willing, we're to come to his exaltation in verses 9 through 11 and talk about what God did in response to his humility. So this week, verses 6 through 8 on the humility of Christ. Next week, verses 9 through 11 on the exaltation of Christ. So let's get into the sermon this morning. Two points. The first point is Christ's humility. The second point will be our humility. I've got five points under his humility, and then I'm going to apply it to us in three ways. Number one, Christ's humility. What you will notice as we get into these verses in verses 5 through 8 is a progressively downward progression. Paul is doing this intentionally. He's trying to show the level of humility that Christ underwent for us. That he started at the highest possible place and he went to the lowest possible place. And you will see that progressive downward trend as we walk through these verses. So I want you to think of it like a staircase. Think of it, Christ standing at the very top, and he's going all the way down from the very bottom. And then, Lord willing, next week, we're going to start at the very bottom and go all the way back up to the very top. So number one, his position. This is where it starts, his position. Look at verse six, where Paul says of Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God. Think about that. In the form of God. This means that prior to the Son of God coming into the world at Christmas, he was divine and he is divine. So you 
understand the reality of Christ's humility here only when you understand that he is God, that he is supremely and infinitely and essentially and eternally divine. Notice this word form that Paul uses. He uses several times in this passage. You'll see it again in verse 7 where he says, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And then in verse 8 he says, and being found in human form. So he uses this word form three times. What is, it, what is, he, what is he getting at? Well, it refers to a position. It doesn't mean that Christ went from being God or being like God to not being God. Rather, it means that he was, went from having the position of exalted divinity, God himself, to taking the position of a human servant. Unless we think that form means something else than being fully God, Paul gives us that qualification. Notice verse 6 again. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So form of God does not mean that he wasn't equal with God. It means that he was equal with God. He had equality with God, and yet he exchanged that form, that position, for another position, which was the form of a servant, the form of a human being. So that's the first thing we see in Christ's humility, his position. We can only appreciate it fully when we understand where he came from in the form of God, not counting equality with God. Number two, his renunciation, his renunciation. Notice what Paul says here at the end of verse six, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, he doesn't mean that he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning that he was reaching out for something that he didn't have. Sometimes we talk about grasping that. If, if my son throws a football to me across the yard and it's a little bit to the left and I reach out and grasp it, I didn't have it, but I'm reaching out for it and hopefully I Odell Beckham it and bring it in. But that's not what Paul's referring to when he talked about Jesus grasping or not grasping his equality with God. Rather, he's not holding on to it. He has it, right? He has equality with God. Paul says that, but yet he's willingly renouncing it. He's giving it up. He's not grasping for or reaching for something he doesn't have. He's giving up what he does have. And so the next phrase, he emptied himself means that he gave up what he had. He's not trying to gain what he didn't have. Did you see how Paul described it here in verse 6? He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Did we hear that word count in those previous verses? Look back at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. See, this is what Jesus is doing. Same Greek word. Paul intends the same meaning to be communicated. What he is not counting 
is his own ambition, his own conceit. But in humility, he's counting us more significant than himself. And so how does that manifest itself? It says in verse 7, but he emptied himself. Now what is involved in the Son of God's self-emptying? Just to be clear, he did not renounce or divest himself of his divine nature. He didn't give that up to be God. Even though he gave up the position, he did not give up the person. He can't cease to be divine. But he did give up the position and all the privileges and prerogatives that that gave him, his glory, his majesty, his heavenly splendor. He gave all that up. Remember when he's praying in John chapter 17? And we get this insight into the, the son's relationship with the father. And in John chapter 17, verse 5, he asked the father to restore to him the glory that he had with him before he came to earth. That's the, that's the self-emptying. Give me back, father, what I had with you before I took on this mission. And so that's what we see is involved in the self-emptying of the son of God. But even more, look at this. But he emptied himself, verse 7, by taking, by taking. Think about this. He emptied himself by taking. Isn't that an unusual phrase? We don't typically think of when you're giving something up that you're taking something. We think you're giving it up. What? But no, this emptying involved a taking. This was not then a subtraction from the person of Christ but it was subtraction by addition. I know it doesn't make mathematical sense, and Jim Golly will affirm that, but it makes divine sense. He became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. But that taking of a human form was less of a position than he previously enjoyed. He took on himself our humanity without ceasing to be the fully divine person that he had always been. And so that in his person, humanity and divinity perfectly and wholly and completely dwell together in this one divine person. He empties himself, taking. Now what does he take? We've seen his position. We've seen his renunciation. Number three, his condescension. He took the form of a servant. We see that in the middle of verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. What does a servant do? A servant exists not to meet his own interests, but to meet the interests of others. That's why Paul says in chapter 2, verse 4, we'll read it again, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, take the form of a servant because that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus considered your interests, my interest above his own interests. Now, let me give you some examples. We're gonna just pause here for a second and I wanna give you some examples just to remind you of the servanthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Matthew 14? 
Jesus gets word that his cousin, John the Baptist, the only one who understood him, the only one who got him, the only one who understood who he was and what his mission was, he gets word that he's dead. Do you know where Jesus was when that news came? He was in the midst of a vast multitude of people that were carping at him, that were barking at him because they were hungry. And you know what he did? He fed them. If ever there was a time when Jesus could have said, you know, I just need a minute alone, guys. Please dismiss the crowd. Wouldn't that have been appropriate? I mean, don't we need a moment every now and then? Right? I'm just a little stressed. That's a little bit heavy. But what does he do? He doesn't consider his own interests. He considers the interests of others, and he feeds them. He forgets about himself, and he feeds thousands and thousands and thousands of ungrateful people. Because don't think they were grateful. Remember the story of the ten lepers? Only one came back. That's pretty much characteristic of his whole ministry. Everybody likes a free handout. What about John 13, where the disciples are arguing about who will be the greatest and who's going to be first in the kingdom? What does he do? Well, you know the story well. He gets down and he washes their feet, including Judas. John 14, he tells the disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Remember that, John 14, 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Who has the most troubled heart in the room? The Gospels tell us that night in the Garden of Gethsemane that his heart was troubled. And even as John tells us that, he also already told us that when he came into the city of Jerusalem that week, before this ever happened, before he's ever having this conversation in the upper room with his disciples, John already said his heart was deeply troubled. And yet, here he is in the upper room saying, My dear disciples, I am so concerned for you that you not be discouraged because tomorrow's going to be really, really hard for you. Really, really hard for you. Really, really hard for him. What about him? Who's thinking about him? Think of it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Wouldn't you just stay awake with me and pray? They can't even do that. And he's praying for their salvation, and he's praying the prayer of a slave. Not my will, but your will be done. And they can't even stay awake with him to pray. And he's praying that prayer for their salvation. He took the form of a servant. And think of him while he's there, after he's been arrested in the house of the high priest, being tried by that kangaroo court. And his feckless disciple, Peter, is out in the courtyard denying him three times, which he had emphatically told him he would not do. Lord, I'm going to die for you. Will you die for me, Peter? And the third time that Peter denies him, Luke tells us that at that very instance, remember what happened? Jesus and Peter's eyes meet. 
if ever a man had a right to be saying, you know what, I've got my own problems to deal with right now. I can't think about my disciples. It was Jesus, and there he is, being tried by a kangaroo court, thinking about the everlasting welfare and the eternal soul of his weak and unfaithful disciple, Peter. Or just think of the cross. Think of him there, nailed to the tree, uttering a prayer for his murderers. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Or speaking to that thief, both of whom had been mocking him all day long. And yet, there's one thief at the end of the day who isn't any longer and says to Jesus, please, Lord, remember me. Remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I know I've been a thief. I know I've been mocking you all day with this guy. Remember me. And the Lord Jesus says, while bearing the sins of all those who would ever believe in him, turns to that man who had, who had been mocking him at the beginning of that day and says to him, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And then a few moments later, he will cry his final cry of dereliction, of final anguish and death, and he's looking down at his mother and his dearest friend, John, and he says, John, look, something that's really been on my heart is my mom. Would you please look after her? take care of her. He's bearing the wrath of God. And he says, look after my mom. Take care of her. I'm not going to be around to take care of her. So behold your mother, behold your son. And mother, I can't be your son anymore like I've been, so there's John. He's going to take care of you. I'm worried about you. I'm concerned about you. I want you to, be, to know that you're going to be taken care of and you're not going to die alone. Was ever a servant like our Lord Jesus? Did ever, was there ever a man who went lower than him? Was there ever a man who considered others' interests more important than their, his own? Was there ever a man in humility counted others more significant than himself? There never was one. That's number three, his condescension. Let's move to number four, his incarnation. That is his taking on humanity, taking on human form. Notice in verse 7 it says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. So he uses, I think it's interesting, because Paul uses this phrase, likeness of men. And we might think, well, does that mean he wasn't fully man? I mean, he's just like a man? And he says he took on the likeness of men. No, the, the phrase likeness in the Bible, remember, relates to, especially in Genesis, the image of God as humanity, right? As humanity, we are made in the image and likeness of God. So he's eternally God, and now he's being made in the likeness of men, which means he's being coming fully human. Paul makes it even clearer in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, when he says that Jesus was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. It's very interesting. He didn't, he didn't take on himself becoming a sinner. He didn't become sinful flesh, but he became flesh. He took on the likeness of flesh. He was found in human form. He was, took on the position of a human. He became a man. And so we see his position, his renunciation, his condescension, his incarnation, all leading up, number five, to his humiliation. His humiliation. 
Notice this in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul's marching it down, down, down. We're not just at the bottom of the steps. We're going into the basement. Because he's saying he not only left heaven, he not only renounced his privileges there, but he took the form of a servant. He just take, take the form of a servant. He became a man. And that manhood led to a humbling, led to an obedience, led to an obedience to the point of death, even to the death of the cross, the most shameful and humiliating way for any man to ever die. It was reserved for the worst of criminals. It was the most shameful, publicly mocking, degradation a man could experience, naked, horrid, unable to even be looked at. And if you were looked at, it was so that people could spit on you because you're dying the death of a capital criminal. And this is what the Lord Jesus did. But why? Why? Well, now we come to our humility. That's his humility. Those are the five steps. Now let's talk for the next several minutes about our humility. What is this act of Christ, or we could say this whole life of Christ, and leading up to his death on the cross, what's that meant to do for us? I got three applications. Here's the first one. An application regarding our salvation. An application regarding our salvation. Listen, when it says in verse 8 that he humbled himself... And he became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. There's two things that are highlighted there in that verse. The first is his obedience, and the second is his death. He was dying under the wrath of God, but prior to that death, he was living a life of perfect obedience to God. Why do you need to do that? Because we don't, and we haven't. Where does Paul speak in this letter of the necessity of Christ's obedience for us? I want you to look one chapter over, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Look here where Paul is recounting his own testimony of conversion to Christ. And he says in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them. Same word. Count them as rubbish. How is he able to count the world is rubbish compared to knowing Christ because Christ counted heaven as rubbish for Paul. When Christ thought of us, brothers and sisters, and thought of us, he looked around at the heavenly glory and he said, this is garbage. This is garbage. I want them. I want them. And he renounced it. He treated it like a light thing. Paul uses the same word there, count. Counting is rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ, why? Why do we need to gain Christ? Why do we need to have Christ, Paul? Look at verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's why Christ had to live obediently, so that he could provide a righteousness for us that we did not have and that we could not earn ourselves. 
If the apostle Paul said, here's the gospel, be humble like Jesus and God will save you. God will forgive you if you humble yourself like Jesus. Do you know where we would all be? Hell! Forever! That is not good news. That's really good advice. It's not good news. Listen, brothers and sisters, the gospel is not a help-wanted sign. It's a help-available sign. God doesn't need your help. He wants you, and he's offering to you forgiveness. The gospel is not a ladder. It's a cross. The glory of the gospel is that the only one in the universe who deserved to say, I stand on my rights. I stand on my merits. I stand on my deserving. He's the only one who ever had the right to say all that, and yet he abdicated all of that and humbled himself to save us because we stand on our rights and our merits and our deserving. We couldn't have done it. Our first father, Adam, failed miserably. Romans chapter 5, verse 19 for as many, for as by one man's disobedient, the many were made sinners, that's all of us by nature and all of humanity, so by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, they will be made, they will be made righteous. So notice something. We have a contrast here between the Lord Jesus Christ, our second Adam, and the first Adam. The first Adam was made in the divine image, so too the last Adam had to be made in the divine image. The first Adam thought it a prize to be grasped at to be as God, but the last Adam thought it not a prize to be grasped to be as God. The first Adam aspired to a reputation. The last Adam made himself of no reputation. The first Adam spurned being God's servant. The last Adam took upon himself the form of God's servant. The first Adam sought to be in the likeness of God. The last Adam was made in the likeness of men. The first Adam was found in fashion as a man of dust. The last Adam was found in fashion as a man. The first Adam exalted himself. The last Adam humbled himself. The first Adam became disobedient unto death. The last Adam became obedient unto death. The first Adam was condemned and disgraced. The last Adam was highly exalted and given the name of Lord. You see, brothers and sisters, and praise God's name, the gospel is not humble yourself like Jesus and God will save you. It's God has given his son who has humbled himself in your place. And because he has done that, and because you have rested and trusted in him alone for salvation, now here's how you live. Humble yourself like Jesus so that his glory, the glory of his humility is manifested in you. And you know what will happen? When the world sees that, the world will see that kind of humility didn't come from any earthly region. That came from heaven itself. So that's the application regarding our salvation. That's what this passage is first and foremost about. It's not an example to be followed first. It's a savior to be received. Then it's an example we follow. But first, it's a savior we receive. So have you received him? Have you received him this morning? Have you received this one who left his position of heaven, renounced everything, condescended, humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on the cross, became incarnate as a man for you and for your salvation? If not, that's your application for the sermon. Receive Christ this morning. If you have received Christ, most of you have, now we look at his pattern and how we seek to imitate him. 
And that's where our next two applications are going to lead us. These applications are reserved for us as believers. Here's the, first, here's the second one, an application regarding relationships in the church. In the Christian community, though we want to be loved and though we want to be understood and we want to be comforted and we want to be esteemed and thought well of and though we want to be ministered to, listen, we will have as our mindset, as our mind, as our attitude, as our outlook, as the thing that pervades the essence of who we are, the mindset of our master. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, all of us. Every believer taking upon this, their mind, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It is yours. You have this mind. Now act like it. Live it out. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Don't look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so, yes, though we want to be loved, though we want to be understood, though we want to be comforted, though we want to be esteemed, following Jesus means that we adopt his mind. And that our first order of business becomes not to be loved, but to love. Not to be understood, but to understand. Not to be comforted, but to comfort. Not to be esteemed, but to think highly of others. That's our application for our relationships in the church. I want to talk about three objections that might come. Number one, Pastor Mark, I get what you're saying, but this is going to make me miserable. I mean, it's going to make me miserable. I get it. Let me tell you something. You, this is where joy comes in. When you give yourself away and you decide, okay, life is not about me being served. Life is about me giving myself away in service. What happens when a church collectively decides to do that, every single person? What happens? Instead of having 200 people serving one person, there are 200 people serving 199 other people. And so that suddenly, no matter how much you're giving away, you always find yourself being cared for. Because everyone is giving away their right to be the center of the service of everyone. And suddenly, in that context, you find yourself right in the bullseye of the service of all your other brothers and sisters. So that giving ourselves away in service ends up entailing the receipt of service from your brothers and sisters on the back end. Now, you're not conscious of that. You're seeking to love others and count others more important than yourselves and serve them and look out for their interests. But when everybody's committed to doing that, which means everybody's doing, obeying Jesus, he didn't just say this was for one Christian. He said, verse 5, have this mind among plural yourselves, every Christian, We are all to, to be about that, and that will not make you miserable. That will bring you so much joy. Number two, second objection. But some people are difficult and not easy to love and have hurt me in the past. Listen, no matter how far you have to go to humble yourself before someone who has wronged you or someone who is beneath you, you will never be stooping as low as your Savior stooped to serve you. If you were, listen, I want to, I try to think of an illustration this week of what this might look like. And this, it's a fallible illustration as all illustrations are, but I'm going to try to give you an illustration of what might be. Say you're a nurse, male or female, and someone in this congregation 
had done serious harm to your family before they came to Christ, or maybe in, as they're in Christ, hurt you deeply, maybe did something that resulted in the fatality of somebody in your family, and had come back repentant only to contract a debilitating disease that was your particular specialty as a nurse. And for the next 30 to 40 years, you were required to care for them, clip their toenails, help them in the bathroom. This was a person who hurt you and your family deeply. If you had to serve them for 30 or 40 years without compensation because God had burdened you and called you to that, you wouldn't even begin to get an inch toward what Christ did for you. You will never come close, let alone match Jesus in his stooping for you. You'll never exceed him. You'll never even approach how far he humbled himself. You will never be able to account someone more significant than yourself who is comparatively lower in relation to you than you are in relationship to Jesus. You will never, listen to this, you will never ever serve someone as far beneath you as Jesus did in his saving service of you. Never. Think of the worst person you can think of that you're called to serve in the most just radical ways for a long period of time. That will never even touch how far you are beneath Jesus to serve. <laughs> ever. Ever. And so, even though it's difficult, it's never as difficult as Jesus had it. You weren't easy to love. I'm not either. How many times have you hurt him? More times than anybody else will ever hurt us. And then finally, number three, third objection. But I'll be treated like a doormat. People just walk all over me. Type A personalities all over the world are going to come to me like a magnet. They're going to sense that I'm available to be trampled upon and taken advantage of. And I'll be just flat on the floor if I do this. It won't work. It's not practical. I get it. It's in the Bible, but it won't work. If you ever argue with the Bible, the problem's with you, not the Bible. Right? Don't do that with the Bible. Say, well, I get what you're saying. We get this in Serbia when I teach. Well, I understand what the Bible's saying. It won't work here. I'm sorry, you don't get to say that. You don't get to say that. Bible trumps what you think will work. Last time I checked, the Bible works. We just don't like what it says. No, listen, because of our self-emptying does not mean that we live or become doormats or enablers. It means that confident in who we are in Christ, we refuse to live merely for the purpose of self-protection and self-advancement. So we serve one another for God's glory and for Christ's sake, according to Christ's example, looking out for their best interests. Listen, it's strength that's manifest in weakness, but it's not, strength, it's not weakness. It's strength that says in some cases to a dominant abusive personality, no, no. No! Because you're committed to giving them what they need, what, not what they want. That's ultimately in their own best interest, right? 
It's not in the best interest to be a doormat and enabler. It's in the best interest to give them what they need. And that's why this doesn't pave the way to everybody abusing everybody else. It should pave the way for everybody serving everybody else in the way that they need to be served, according to Christ's example. So those are the three brief objections. Fourth, and very quickly, an application regarding our witness to the world. An application regarding our witness to the world. Paul has this on his mind too. I want you to notice chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He's concerned about our witness. He says in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. What's the main reason we don't grumble and dispute and count ourselves as more important than everybody else and not serve the other interests but expect them to serve us? Because that's what the world does. It shall not be so among you. Listen, we are surrounded on all sides, religious and secular, and especially in our cultural moment, by a self-centered culture. In politics on both the right and the left, People are using power to pull the country in the direction they want. Now, wouldn't it be radical if instead of taking that posture, that like, hey, that's my right and I want it back, we said to the culture, how can we serve you? How can we serve you? Yes, you've taken this right away from us that we once enjoyed, but how may we serve you? Here's what Ligon Duncan says about this very point. He says, we want to look out for the well-being of all people, especially those who disagree with us, even though they may despise us for it, because that's what Jesus did. We want to show them goodwill. And what kind of witness would that be to the world? They would have no explanation for it. See, they understand power. They understand power plays. They don't understand dying servanthood. The world looks at both secular and religious manifestations of self-centeredness and the world looks at them and says, you know, they're all just saying the same thing. They're all doing the same thing. And we don't shine as lights in in a crooked and perverse generation. We look exactly like it. We look like the very crooked and perverse people we are trying to call to the kingdom of God. Now, am I saying we don't vote? and Am I saying that we don't try to be salt and light in the world? No, I'm not saying any of that. I'm talking about a posture of heart here. If we were to say, how could we stand aside from the claims to our rights and privileges and seek the well-being of others, to love them, to care for them? My friends, the world has no categories for that because there is no answer to that except these people love something more than this world. They evidently love something more than themselves. They love something more than their own rights. They see, they see something, they, they, they seem to take the form of a servant. They seem to be dying the death of a cross. They seem to be bearing the shame and indignation of a world that doesn't like them. May God help us to shine as lights in a crooked and perverse generation among whom we shine. And may we shine without grumbling or disputing, but in humble service like our Savior. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are for this example. It's so challenging. 
It reminds us of the ways in which we fall short of your glory, both in our relationships with one another and in our witness to the world. And we thank you so much that there is forgiveness with you, that our first point that we talked about related to this passage was the fact that Jesus came and lived this life for us because we don't. He counted us more important than ourselves because we don't. He counted our interests more important than himself because we don't. And through that, we can be transformed and changed into his image. God, grant us to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. It's not something we're working for. It's something we have. This is who you've made us to be. Help us to live in sync with this gospel in an ever-increasing way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.